Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, for those of you who have spent any time around me, you know that when it comes to the Christmas holidays, I like to get, as Pastor Jason says, jingly. <laughs> I like to get my jingle on when it comes to Christmas. I love the lights, I love the music, I love the decorations, I love the parties, I love all of it. But one of my favorite things during the Christmas holiday is, of course, sitting back and watching some Christmas movies. Now, of course, Don and I have our go-to list of Christmas movies that we like to watch. And when I say Don and I have our go-to list, I mean to say that Dawn has her go-to list of Christmas movies, and I have my go-to list of Christmas movies. For example, Dawn likes Christmas movies like White Christmas and The Santa Claus and The Holiday, where I enjoy more festive movies like Die Hard and <laughs> Gremlins and, of course, A Christmas Vacation. But there is one movie that we tend to agree on every Christmas, and that is A Christmas Story. Now, for those of you who may not know what a Christmas story is, and if that's you, first of all, what rock have you been living under? But I will grant you that there are, might be people in here who have never seen it. So let me just give you a quick synopsis. A Christmas story follows the humorous exploits of a young boy by the name of Ralphie growing up in the 1940s as he tries to convince his parents that the Red Ryder BB gun is the perfect Christmas gift. Now, I have to confess to you guys this morning, I have probably seen that movie well over a hundred times, literally. And God willing, I will probably watch it a hundred more before I stand before the pearly gates with Jesus. And I watched that movie over and over again for a lot of reasons, but primarily because of the nostalgia. I love the nostalgia of a Christmas story. From the opening scene where Ralphie and his friends have their faces firmly pressed against the de department store window of Higby's, to the final scene where Ralphie is cradling his Red Rider, Red Rider BB gun as he drifts off to sleep. The movie is bursting in every scene with elements of Christmas nostalgia. And there is an element with that that I like to watch it because it reminds me of some of the joy, some of the wonder, and some of the excitement that I felt at Christmas time as a child. In a weird kind of way, it's an opportunity to reconnect with something that I've lost as an adult. Because as I've gotten older, there seems to have been this seismic shift in my heart towards Christmas where as a child, I once looked and approached Christmas with this unadulterated joy. As an adult, I've become more cynical, right? Like I got so excited by the magic of Christmas as a child, but as an adult, I start to see Christmas through the lens of greed and consumerism. As a child, I got so caught up in the unbridled excitement of Christmas, and now as adults, I tend to feel just the exhaustion 
of that pressure that the holidays put on my already busy schedule. As a kid, I got caught up in this almost uncontainable anticipation anticipation for the coming of Christmas. And now as an adult, it feels like that's been tainted almost by disappointment of unmet Christmas expectations. I don't know if any of you can relate with that, but I was thinking about that this week, and I remember a story of my nephew, who I love dearly. I had gone back to Colorado to visit them one Christmas, and I had found the perfect Christmas gift for my nephew. And I had visions of my head of my nephew opening this present, and the skies parting, light coming down, (laughs) angels singing, and he looks at me with this tear rolling down his eye and embraces me and says, you're the best uncle ever. That was my expectation. The truth was, he opened the gift, said meh, and decided to play more with the box than the toy. (laughs) Unmet expectations created disappointment. And the truth is, is that it's not only Christmas where I begin to see the slow erosion of joy in my life as an adult. It seems that my faith has suffered some similar consequences. Let me explain what I mean when I say that. I want for you just to picture for a moment, to think back to that moment when you first came into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, when you first made that decision that you were going to commit your life to following after the Lord, and think for with me for a moment, what were some of the emotions that you felt in that moment? For me, when I think back on that, I think of this joy of finally in my life being both fully known and fully loved. I came to the realization that God knew me, both the good and the bad, the pretty and the ugly, and yet he loved me no matter what. Aside from that, I also felt a deep sense of wonder. For the first time, I cracked open the Bible and I looked at it with awe and wonder and I couldn't believe what I saw in there. Man, can you believe that God did this? I can't believe that Jesus said that. It was wonder that it captured me when I opened the Bible. And then also there was this element that I couldn't stop talking about this Jesus guy. Man, everywhere I went, I had to tell people about Jesus and what he had done in my life. But the truth is, much like Christmas as a child, there's this seismic shift that has happened in my faith as I've become more mature as a believer. I've become and felt cynicism in my faith. I don't know about you, but I've gone to enough church now to realize that not everyone who goes to church practices always love, peace, and joy. I've also felt this pressure of being bored with my faith. Because so many times pastors and leaders told me that the culmination of my salvation resulted in me sitting in a chair every Sunday and making sure that I put money in the tithe plate. Oh, how that breeds boredom in my soul towards my salvation. And then there is also this element of disappointment that I felt in my faith. People that I've loved have died and not been healed. There have been people that I love that have marriages that have ended in bitter divorce. I've seen people that I love struggle with addictions. 
I've seen people that I love wrestle and be stuck in toxic and abusive relationships. And on and on it goes. I see these perceived injustices that create disappointment in my faith and rob me of my joy. And the truth is this morning, church, if I'm honest with you, sometimes my joy in my faith seems to dissipate or erode the more mature I become in my faith as a believer. And much like a child at Christmas, now looking back as an adult, I look at my faith and I wonder, what happened to the joy? What happened to the excitement? What happened to the wonder that once captured my heart when I first came to a saving knowledge of Jesus? I wonder if anybody else in here can relate to that. Perhaps you hear that and you look at your own faith and you say, I see that in my own faith journey as well. Here's the truth, though. Further complicating this issue of abundant joy in our lives is the seeming contradiction between life as we experience it every day and life as it is described in Scripture. Let me give you an example. Romans 15.3 says this, and I'm going to fly through these, so we're not going to put these up on the screen, but it says this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may, listen to this, overflow with hope and power in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14.7 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it is of righteousness, of peace, and of joy in the Holy Spirit. And then 1 Peter 1.8-9 says this, Though you have not seen Him, meaning Jesus, you love Him. Even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him, and are filled, catch this, with inexpressible and glorious joy. Inexpressible and glorious joy. So I have to ask you this morning, church, what the heck happened? What the heck happened? Because in all honesty, man, if I were to have to be forced to describe a lot of Christians that I know, I would be hard-pressed to have to describe them in those terms. No one here, of course. (laughs) But but if I were to have to describe Christians, I know some of the most sour and some of the most bitter and angst-filled people are people that go to church. And I'm not just pointing the finger at others. I point the finger at myself too because I would be hard-pressed at times to describe my own life in those same terms. If you don't believe me, you can ask my wife who has to live with me every day and earns a jewel in her crown in heaven because I am not easy to live with. (laughs) But here's the thing. When it comes to joy, how do we live each day in the fullness of joy that flows from the good news of the gospel? How do I return to that place in my faith where I see and receive the good news of the gospel the same way I saw and received the Christmas time as a child? How do I get to a place where I can recapture that joy? I want to look at Jesus the same way Ralphie looked at that Red Ryder BB gun. I want to be filled with that awe and anticipation that I will do nothing but and everything to capture Jesus and that joy in my heart. Church, if you feel that way this morning, can I just tell you, you're not alone. You're not 
alone. And I think God knew that we would wrestle with this issue of joy because in the Christmas story, he invites a group of unlikely outcasts to herald the greatest news in the history of mankind, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah and Savior, and then bring the news that brings joy for all people. So let's turn this morning to Luke chapter 2 and re-examine what is, for many, a very familiar story. But as we look at this story, let's do so with fresh eyes. As we look anew at the reasons for that inexpressible and glorious joy and hope that we have in Christ. As you turn there, either in your Bibles, if you're watching us online, I invite you to do so as well. If you're turning in your Bible apps, you can uh, turn to Luke chapter 2. And while you're turning there, let me just give you some background on the book of Luke before we dive into the message. The Gospel of Luke is the third book in the New Testament. It's part of four books that we call the Gospel. And the Gospels are narrative, written narratives of Jesus' life on earth. And just as authors may have different perspectives of stories, each of the authors of the gospel has a different perspective or perhaps take on Jesus as they write their gospel. And Luke pre presents a beautiful picture of Jesus as this compassionate Savior. In fact, in the book of Luke, we see that Jesus is not turned off by the poor and the needy. In fact, it's the focus and the foundation of his ministry. Much of the unique material that we find in the book of Luke involves Jesus' interactions with people that would largely be considered outside the acceptable norms of society. I'm talking about sinners, women, and children. And Jesus embraces them all. And in Luke's portrayal of Jesus, it reveals a man come as Lord to minister and show compassion to all people, no matter their position in life. And Luke's depiction of Jesus as this compassionate Savior is going to be an important point of understanding as we look to reclaim the joy in our faith. So let's read the account of the birth of Christ together, beginning in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news, and will, cause, will be cause for great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been 
told. And we read that story, and we tend to gloss over things because it's very familiar to us. We look at that story and say, yep, that's the Christmas story. There's Mary and Joseph, check. Baby in a manger, check. Angels and shepherds, check. It's the Christmas story. But the problem with familiarity in Scripture is that we tend to gloss over entire portions like the Christmas story and don't approach them with that sense of awe and wonder that we should with God's Word. For example, as you look at that story in Luke chapter 2, have you ever stopped to consider why Jesus and why God, in authoring the narrative, decided to include the shepherds in this story? And not just include them, not just mention them, but devote an entire portion of Scripture to them. In fact, as we look at the Christmas narrative, beginning in Luke chapter 2, we see that there were actually only eight verses dedicated to the actual birth of Christ, while there's an entire 12 verses dedicated to the shepherds. Why? Why would God include such a large portion, over half the Christmas story, be dedicated to these shepherds? And I believe it's because God is trying to reveal to us something beautiful about the gospel story. However, in order to understand that, we have to be able to understand more about who these shepherds were. And Jason did a great job this morning talking about some background on these shepherds. But in first century society, shepherds really were seen as outcasts and outsiders, not only socially, but also religiously. Socially, shepherds were viewed as uneducated and unskilled, dishonest and unreliable, and in general were just kind of unsavory characters. In fact, one ancient Jewish text says that shepherds were not even allowed to testify in court because their word could not be trusted. Another Jewish text says that when it came to helping shepherds, they were not to be helped at all. In fact, they were to be considered as heathen. So socially, they were outcasts. And then religiously, they were also considered outcasts because they were ceremonially unclean. Think about it. They have these sheep, and taking care of sheep is a seven-day-a-week a seven job, right? You can't take breaks in taking care of sheep. And because they had to spend all their time focusing on these animals, they couldn't follow the ceremonial laws that would make them clean in Jewish standards. And so the religious leaders of those days considered the shepherds to be ceremonially unclean. So to put it Basically, in other words, if you were a shepherd in Jesus' day, man, you got it coming and going. You couldn't find uh, help or be accepted either socially or either in your religious circles. And yet it is this unlikely group of people, these outcasts from Bethlehem, that God singled out to receive the greatest honor in history to be able to receive the announcement of the coming Savior, Jesus. And I think God did this for a reason, because God chose the shepherds to reveal the simplicity of the gospel message to all. I love what author and pastor Stephen Cole says when he's describing this. When he's talking about this salvation, he describes it and says that God put his cookies on the bottom shelf. God put his cookies 
on the bottom shelf. And I love that because for us as human beings, there's so many times in our sophistication and in our uh, in our wisdom, we tend to look above. We tend to keep our eyes on the upper, the higher shelves, and we miss the truth of the gospel. We're looking too high. Where it's too much for us to stoop beneath the, to the lowest shelf, and so we miss the joy of the gospel that was available to all. And the good news of the gospel is that if it was the other way around. If the gospel was some complicated message, some complicated philosophy that required a PhD to be able to grasp, it would be the men and women that attained that that would be able to boast and lord that over others. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I've done. And those who maybe aren't as intelligent, like myself, would struggle to be able to attain or grasp hope or qualify for salvation. And the beauty of the gospel, church, is that it was first announced to the shepherds. They probably couldn't read. They probably weren't great leaders. And yet God extended his love to these men through Jesus Christ. And Paul echoes this thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29. And check out what he says here. Brothers and sisters... Think of, when, of what you were when you were called, meaning when you came to faith in Jesus. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world the despised things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before him. Church, the great joy of the gospel is in its simplicity to all men that God put his cookies on the bottom shelf that anyone could reach into the cupboard and grab them. But it's not just in its simplicity either. God is communicating something else through these shepherds. He's communicating about the accessibility of the gospel. Notice what it doesn't say in Luke chapter 2. It doesn't read, in that region, there were some scribes and Pharisees tending to their scrolls and religious rituals. It also doesn't read that in that region there were kings and princes who were looking over their riches in their palaces. Because had the announcement been made to the societal and religious elite of that day, it would have effectively closed the door for any who find themselves in the margins or living on the fringes of acceptable society. The message of the shepherds points towards the accessibility of the gospel and that the gospel and receiving the gospel is not dependent on one status that it is not position that gains you the gospel, it is not wealth that gains you the gospel, it is not prestige that gains you the gospel. The reason for the great joy of the gospel message is that we are all outcasts like the shepherds and we can have joy that we all are able to reach those cookies because God breaks social barriers and builds bridges for all men. Since time immemorial in our hearts, the sin in our hearts has caused us as human beings to divide and put up barriers between other people. We continue to divide by gender, by race, and by religion. 
by nationality, by wealth, by class, by political party, hello, and every other difference we can find to separate ourselves from others. And in seeking to preserve our kind or to elevate self, humankind has massacred, we've segregated, we've marginalized, and we've conquered anyone who tends to look different than us. And yet, guys, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came into the world to present a truth that was to unify all men. And that truth is found in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 15. Jesus says this, After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus says that the kingdom of God has come near. And when Jesus is talking about that kingdom, he's not talking about an earthly king or an earthly throne that he was to be put up on. He's talking about an end of an era where sin and condemnation has ruled over our lives and will be no more because Jesus has ushered in an era of grace and redemption through the cross. It is through the blood spilled by Jesus that the accessibility to the gospel, the door has been kicked down and Jesus says, all are welcome regardless of where you come from, regardless of what your status is. If you believe and call on my name, salvation is yours All are welcome at the table of God. And so as we come back, church, full circle to Luke chapter 2, and we look once again at these shepherds, they are proof of the accessibility of God's kingdom. They are a reminder to me, and they are a reminder to you and to all of us that it doesn't matter what you've done in life. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what other people say about you. It doesn't matter what house you grew up in or what city you came from. God opens the door wide to anyone who calls and believes in his name. And so Jesus says, not only is the gospel simple, but it's also accessible to all. And that is the beauty and the joy of the gospel. The joy of the gospel is that it's not something that we have to strive to attain. Jesus has made it available to anyone. And so there is one final point worthy of examination as we look here at Luke chapter 2. And that is that the beauty of the gospel should not only lead us to receive it with great joy, but it should also cause us to share it with great joy as well. Look at um, Luke chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, and see first uh, again how the shepherds respond to the good news of the gospel. It says that when they had seen him, meaning Jesus, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. As Jason said this morning and correctly identified, these are the first New Testament evangelists. The joy of the gospel compelled them to share it with others. They couldn't keep it inside if they wanted to. They had to tell people about this man, Jesus. Because the gospel was never meant to be kept to ourselves. The gospel was never meant to be hoarded 
It was meant to be shared. And I, I was thinking about this week, man, and I remember a few years ago when the Broncos won the Super Bowl 50, right? Like, and we've had done nothing since then. But when that <laughs> happened, when that happened, I was so overjoyed that my team had won the Super Bowl that I literally wore Broncos merchandise everywhere I went. I'm posting on social media. I'm sharing incessantly with anybody who will listen, especially if they were a Raiders or Chiefs fan. I just proclaimed the Broncos and my joy to them, so much so that I actually went out to an interview in North Carolina and wore a Broncos jersey on my last day of the interview And you say, so what? Well, the Broncos beat the Carolina Panthers that year in the Super Bowl. So I flaunted. I was not a gracious winner, but I was joyous about it. I was very joyous about it. And church, that was for a stupid football team. That was for a stupid football team. And so I asked, how much more should the good news of the gospel fill and saturate every area of my life? How much more should there be a natural outpouring of my love for a Savior, both in my word and in deed? And because the beauty, the unparalleled beauty of the gospel, church, is that it's not only simple and accessible, but it leads us to that place of great joy and not only receiving it and sharing it. As God puts his cookies on the bottom shelf, we should be the ones that come alongside and point others to that as well. You don't have to reach up high to try and grab that. You don't have to try and attain that. Jesus already brought it low and made it available to everyone. But there's a problem with joy as we try to apply this this morning. Because joy is one of those weird things that can't be manufactured. It can't be manufactured I can't sit up here this morning and give you five steps to receive joy of the gospel any more than my beloved wife can extol the 12 virtues of pineapple on pizza in an attempt to try to get me to be joyful about that horrible food. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so not only can I not manufacture joy in you, here's the other truth about Christian joy. You can't manufacture it in yourselves. Because Christian joy, according to the Bible, is not an experience that comes from favorable conditions. It stems from happiness based on spiritual realities. It's not based on circumstance or what's happening in my life. It's based on spiritual realities. Scripture says that joy is an inner gladness, a deep-seated pleasure that is birthed and energized by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Listen to what the Bible says about this and catch this. In Acts chapter 2, 52, it says this, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And then Romans 14, 17 again says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And Galatians 5, 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. In other words, church, We can't manufacture that faith because where our faith, our joy, isn't based on an experience. It's not based on circumstance. It's something that the Holy Spirit authors in our lives. 
So if you can't manufacture that joy that comes from the gospel, how then do we live every day in the fullness of that joy that's supposed to come from the gospel in the way that the Bible describes our lives? I think as Christians and Christ followers, we would do well to learn from Mary's example in Luke chapter 2 as we examine her response to the good news of the gospel that the shepherds brought to her. Look in uh, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 19, it says this, But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now again, we're so familiar with this Christmas story that we just glide past things and don't even stop to imagine the circumstances that were happening in that moment. Think about it with me. Mary has literally just given birth. I'm sure she is exhausted, fatigued, and probably in a ton of pain. Joseph, being the doting husband, is probably checking in on her every five seconds. Mary, how you doing? Mary, how you doing? Mary, how you doing? Friends and family are coming in and out of the house checking on her. And to make matters worse, a group of smelly shepherds who she has no idea who they are show up at her doorstep and say, hey, I want to see your baby because an angel told us about it. It is the quintessential picture of the human spirit entangled in the busyness and chaos of life. And yet in the midst of that, despite all that is going on around Mary, it says that she created space to intentionally reflect and ponder the good news of the gospel. And I think church like Mary, we also need to create space in our own lives. Our souls need that space to breathe. Our souls need that space where the Holy Spirit can come in and author that joy in our lives that comes from the gospel. And so how do we do that? I want to give you something today that you can walk out of here and begin practicing this Christmas season. I want to encourage you this Christmas to intentionally begin to create space by reflecting and being thankful for the good news of the gospel. Church, this is something that I've begun to do in my own life over these last few weeks and months because I realized my soul was suffocating. I was so busy under the weight of doing good things. In a minister, as a pastor, I'm helping with church buildings, I'm preaching, doing all this stuff, and yet my soul was suffocating because I wasn't creating space for the Spirit to foster that joy in my heart. And so I started with an intentional pause each day. And the way mine looks, I'm doing two a day now, but I set a reminder on my phone at 10 and at 2, and I intentionally pause for one minute. Doesn't matter where I'm at, doesn't matter what I'm doing. Sometimes I'm in my car, sometimes I'm at home, sometimes I'm outside, but when that reminder goes off, I strive to take a minute to just reflect on the good news of the gospel. And you say, why one minute? Why not do more? That doesn't seem very spiritual. You can add more minutes as you go, but it's going to feel very strange as you start out doing that. Because as Americans, we are so unaccustomed to just stopping and being and allowing ourselves just to rest in the good news of the gospel. So as we set these reminders on our phones and you have that one minute intentional pause daily, in that minute, take some time just to reflect and thank God for the good news of the gospel. 
And in that minute, take an opportunity to just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to begin to foster the love and the joy that comes from the gospel in your heart. It doesn't have to be some long, drawn-out prayer, some holy, pious, all the right words. It could very simply sound something like this. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would create in me joy that is greater than my circumstances. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would birth in my heart a joy that stems from the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I receive the joy of the gospel and I want to share it with others. And as we do that, as we begin to create that space in our lives, it's amazing we'll be able to watch and see how that joy begins to grow from the good news of the gospel. This Christmas, guys, let's reflect on the unparalleled beauty of the gospel, both in its simplicity and accessibility, as we both receive it in great joy and look to share it with others. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering for service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world visit us at mosaicwi.com.